to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Money's had a recent story on how the state paid for the deployment last summer of state National Guard troops who were sent to the Texas-Mexico border. Paul, why did Oklahoma send the National Guard down there? Yeah, so this was a state deployment of the National Guard involved, uh, National Guard uh, Airmen and uh, Army National Guard. And so basically it was part of a, a concerted effort by several Republican governors, uh, asked by Governor Greg Abbott in Texas to get some help securing the border, the Texas-Mexico border there. Um, They'd already been doing that in Texas for about 18 months or so, and Governor Abbott asked other governors to send some deployment of troops there, and so uh, Governor Stitt said yes. And uh, how many how many National Guard troops uh, did Stitt send? So this was a, a voluntary deployment. So they could put a call out to their guards people, and uh, 50 people went down in August for about a 30-day mission. All right. And uh, what did the governor have to say about that deployment? Well, the governor said that this was needed uh, because the federal government is kind of at, uh, throwing away its responsibility on securing the border. Um, they're worried about migrants crossing, uh, worried about possible drug coming over, especially fentanyl from uh, China as well. And so it basically said, look, we need to help uh, the federal people already at the border. Um, now, this is a little bit different because um, the, the the National Guard deployed to the border have little powers beyond uh, basic kind of police powers. And so they could not actually arrest and detain anybody. That was left to the federal authorities down there. So they were basically helping spot migrants coming across the border and pointing them out to the federal officials already down there. All right. And uh, I think Kevin uh, Stitt, even somewhere along the line, had a quote about, you know, every state is a border state, right, as as part of the uh, justification for sending troops down there. That's right. And he went down there with several other governors for kind of a, a press conference kind of to highlight the, the, the guards' work down there and also the issues that they see that the federal government is not taking care of at the border. Well, that was uh, back in August, uh, but, you know, it takes a little while for the bookkeeping to come through. What did it cost us to send 50 people to Texas? So it actually cost about 500 and something thousand dollars. Uh, it was a little bit less than what they expected. Early reports when it first was announced was probably in the neighborhood of 800,000. So it did cost a little bit less, but it was $500,000 that the state spent on this 30-day mission. And uh, where did the money come from? So it's a little complicated because um, they were using some federal equipment, so they have to reimburse the federal government for that. And so the way it's working is basically uh, the state's emergency management department is has a fund for um, deploying a National Guard for state purposes. Most of the time that's for um, crisis situations or extreme weather events. Uh, they use that fund and they will then reimburse uh, the state's National Guard, who in turn will re- uh, reimburse the federal government for the parts that they used for federal equipment. Now, it, does that uh, affect in any way the National Guard's ability, uh, say, this winter to respond to a major weather event if we have one? I don't think so. There's there's a pot of money that the state already has set aside and there's appropriations that kind of shore up that fund every year for those kind of extreme weather events. I mean, we've seen the National Guard help on state deployments um, locally in the state for tornado recovery. Uh, and then also we've seen them send other to other states to help in extreme weather situations as well. 
All right. Now, uh, how is a state deployment, uh, the National Guard's really unique in this way, right? Uh, tell us how a state deployment differs from a federal deployment of the National Guard. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's, a lot of it is the, the who, who's sending them. Um, so if there's a state deployment, um, they're basically, the governor calls them up and the state is responsible for most of the payment of that. Um, now, if you are deployed under a state deployment, you do not qualify for any federal uh, VA benefits if you get injured or hurt on that, on that deployment. And you also don't get credit to your service time as a federal uh, National Guards person either. All right. Now, the border, uh, certainly the Texas border in particular, continues to be kind of a political hot potato. What's the latest on that front? That's right. Yeah. Part of the reason that there's, there's been such a surge of migrants at the border is, is related on two fronts. It's basically the end of the, the Trump administration's kind of uh, remain in Mexico policy. And that was basically one that Biden had, uh, President Biden had, had stopped uh, early in his term, his first term here. Um, and basically that allowed migrants who came to the border to remain in Mexico um, as their asylum uh, paperwork and, and cases were going through the U.S. immigration court system, which has been backlogged for several years. And so the end of that policy kind of caused a little bit of a bubble there for people to come in and uh, present themselves at the border as, as asylum seekers. And then secondarily, um, the end of this, the federal government's public health emergency earlier this year um, had put some limits on, on crossings at the border. Those were lifted because the pandemic is kind of in its endemic phase now. And so uh, that also caused a surge of folks coming up from not only uh, Mexico, but Central America and South America, too. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can uh, read Paul's report on the cost of sending troops uh, down to Texas and all of his other work related to state government, you will find it all on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lano Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. His latest story explores how federal regulations for spending money appropriated to Oklahoma to support refugees create some inequities in our state's classrooms. Lionel, what money are we talking about here? The money comes from the Federal Office of Refugee Resettlement, and it gets appropriated to the Oklahoma Department of Human Services uh, Refugee Support Assistance uh, Program every year uh, based on demand. All right. So uh, how much money did Oklahoma get in 23? In 2023, they got $26.8 million, and that's up more than 3,000% from 2020. Um which was 830000 Now, the total that was awarded wasn't to service providers, nonprofits, and, and some public schools uh, across the state. Wasn't the entire $26.8 million. It was $16 million. And then, you know, since we're talking about schools, uh, there was four public school districts that got $1.3 million collectively. Why uh, such a big increase in funding from the feds? That demand, it's way up. Uh, in 2020, there were 461 refugees in the state being serviced with these refugee dollars. And what I mean by service is that uh, these funds are allotted uh, per individual for up to five years, right? After five years of being in Oklahoma, they no longer get this federal support. Uh, but by the end of 2021, there were 2,752 refugees being serviced in the state. And, you know, some of them came from Afghanistan. Most of them came from Afghanistan, as well as Myanmar and Cuba. And by the end of 2023, that number rose to 4,074. 
uh, as of November 6th uh, of last year. So where where are those refugees coming from? You mentioned a big chunk from Afghanistan, uh, but where where all are they coming from and where are they going? Yeah, right. So in 2021, there was a a large group of Afghans that arrived in Oklahoma. And right now they are making up the majority of the refugees that are being serviced in the state. But there are also people from Myanmar, like I said, uh, Cuba, Ukraine, Venezuela, Honduras, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, more than 20 countries uh, are, are, uh, is where people are coming from and arriving in Oklahoma. All right. And what do, what do refugee support services entail? Yeah. So, you know, there's kind of two elements to this where there are nonprofits that are dedicated to helping refugees acclimate to their new communities. Um, and that involves providing them with English courses, employment assistance, help accessing health care, things like sooner care, um, and enrolling their children in school. And, and the nonprofits kind of do that adjacent to what some of these uh, public schools have been doing. All right. So uh, what are the public schools, uh, which one's got the money and what are they doing with it? Yeah. Uh, so there's Tulsa Public Schools, Jenks Public Schools, Stillwater Public Schools, uh, uh, Putnam City P- Public Schools and Edmond Public Schools are the, are the ones that, that got the money. And anywhere between 130 to 175,000 each uh, is, is how much they were appropriated. And the thing about it is that the money is reserved for Afghan populations in, in large part, a vast majority of it, um, with the exception of a small allotment to, to Jenks public schools. And they're hiring, you know, refugees that have arrived here since 2021 who are Afghan to work as interpreters and liaisons to the students and the families um, and the teachers. Well, how are educators uh, getting mileage out of that money so they can help refugees other than Afghans. Yeah, so that was a, a big topic of conversation when I spoke to the folks at, at Patrick Henry Elementary School in Tulsa. Um, and, you know, what, what they ended up doing is hiring an additional English language development teacher who their role is to support the students who are refugees or English learners, right? They're, they're all, all refugees that show up at public schools end up being categorized as English learners. Um, and they help them kind of guide them through the lessons. They help them with vocabulary and reading and stuff like that. And so Tulsa Public Schools use that money that they got to help the Afghans to hire an additional English language development teacher, which is good for all the students, right? And then Stillwater did some or is doing some training for teachers on cultural sensitivity and how to develop curriculum that is uh, appropriate and digestible by folks who don't speak English. Well, what happens to the students who don't have access to those liaisons and people to interpret for them? The pace of their learning is reduced in comparison to their Afghan counterparts. Uh, You know, typically, as it was explained to me, students who arrive not knowing any English take about four years to get to a conversational point where they can, you know, speak to someone and not feel totally self-conscious or like they're missing a large part of the conversation. That's expected to be expedited with, you know, someone who can directly translate the language in real time for each of these students. And for someone coming from Venezuela, for example, uh, who only speaks Spanish, might not have that benefit. Now, in the case of Venezuela specifically, they're, you know, it's easier to hire someone in Oklahoma that speaks Spanish. Uh, But if you talk 
if you're talking about someone from the Democratic Republic of the Congo or from Myanmar, all of a sudden, uh, the amount of people in Oklahoma that speak those languages that are educators uh, is much lower than than what it should be to help these students. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read uh, Lionel's coverage of uh, how that federal money was spent to help uh, refugees, maybe some a uh, little more than others. Uh, you can find the story on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. He recently wrote about Oklahoma's rate of granting parole and how it's declined and what that means for both prisoners and their loved ones or family members. Keaton, could you briefly explain to listeners how Oklahoma's parole process works? Sure. So a lot of it is based on on the offense of the the prisoner who's going up for parole. Uh, if it's classified as a nonviolent offense uh, and they've earned credits or done enough time to be eligible for parole, they can go before the board and the, the board has the, the authority to uh, release them to the street on parole. If it's uh, a violent offense like a murder or something along those lines, um, the board can recommend to the governor that that person be released on parole. And then the governor ultimately has the final say on that. Um, but but both of the, the groups go before uh, the pardon and parole board. So when the uh, parole board members uh, are making a decision either to grant parole or to make a recommendation to the governor, what what kind of uh, information are they supposed to weigh into that decision? There are several different factors, as you as you might imagine, um, person's criminal history, the nature of the crime, um, what they were doing while they were incarcerated, um, if they had misconducts or those sort of things, or if they're involved in, in programs and trying to make use of their time. So it's kind of it's sort of a multifaceted um, look at things is is how the process is, is supposed to work out. And how many Oklahoma prisoners received a uh, favorable recommendation or or got parole uh, in the most recent data, which I think was 2021. Yeah, so in 2021, uh, it was 36, about 36 percent, um, so a little over one in three um, going before the parole board. Um, going into that number a little bit, of course, uh, nonviolent offenders are more likely than uh, violent offenders to to get a favorable recommendation. Um, but overall, as um, everyone going before the board in 2021, it was about 36 percent. And how's that rate declined since then? So in 2023, in the numbers I analyzed, it's down to about 23 percent um, in, in the calendar year 2023, which is a, a fairly notable decline. Yeah, it's about a third. Uh, now, what about other states? Are we seeing something similar or is this strictly an Oklahoma thing? Uh, we are seeing something similar. Uh, the Prison Policy Initiative, which is a think tank that that supports criminal justice reform, did did an analysis a few months ago of parole rates in several states and found that that all but but a few had a similar trend of declining parole grant rates from 2020, 2021 to uh, 2023. And What's contributing to the decline uh, in those paroles? There are a few different things. Um, there has been uh, some pushback to 
uh, criminal justice reform efforts at the state or local left level um, that that we've seen recently over the the past year or two, as well as um, of course recovering from the COVID nineteen pandemic. There uh, a few years ago was was a push in several places to uh, get certain people out of prison, uh, concerned that they would get get the virus and get sick, and it, it wouldn't be a great outcome. Um, now that those concerns have weighed, uh, we're, we're sort of back to where we were before the pandemic. Uh, so it's sort of a combination of those two things. Now, uh, for your story, you spoke to the spouse of uh, someone who was recently denied parole. What did they tell you about that experience? Uh, they, they expressed to me that they were uh, pretty frustrated, as, as you might imagine, um, of course, every every case has has different factors going into it. Um, you know, a person could be doing well in prison, but the the nature of the f- offense might be uh, heinous. So there there are different things working in that regard. But they they really they really felt like their husband had a good shot at getting paroled, um, had a job lined up if they were able to get out. They had letters of support from uh, people. And working with them in the prison system and and outside, um, but they were ultimately denied and uh, will now be waiting until 2026 to go before the board again. Um, but I think there there is some sense in the conversations I had that um, folks would like to see uh, more of a consideration for people who um, were convicted of uh, murder or violent offense in their teenage years or younger years, and they're now in their fifties or sixties, I guess just the the argument that people's brains develop and they they change over those decades. Um that that was kind of the situation there. Um but yeah, overall just frustration uh, about the process. Well and you mentioned that uh you know he he might uh, try again in twenty twenty six. Why can't he why can't he try in twenty twenty four? So there's a waiting period um if you're denied parole. Um, you have to wait three years to reapply. Um, and I, I believe that applies to violent offenses. Um, so that's just the the statutory waiting period to, to reapply. So if you get denied, it's a three-year wait to yes. try again. Okay. And, um, you know, when, when uh, someone is uh, asking to be considered for parole, uh, do they just fill out a form? Do they get to appear before the pardon and parole board in person and talk to them? How does that work? So it, they, they apply for parole, but they don't appear in person, uh, before the parole board, uh, that I guess just with the number of people that are in prison, that would be sort of a logistical, uh, challenge. Um, so it's mostly done through that paper application, uh, letters of support, uh, those sorts of things. All right. So uh, with the whole parole process, what kind of changes are the criminal justice reform advocates uh, hoping to see? Uh, one major change I've I've heard a lot about is uh, folks wanting to make the pardon and parole board full time. Um, that's something I reported in the story is that uh, most of Oklahoma's Neighboring states have a full-time pardon and parole board. Um, Oklahoma's board is expected to work about 10 hours a week on average. Um, the thought process there being that if they had more time to investigate cases and um, consider, you know, the mitigating 
circumstances in some cases that that folks might be uh, more likely to be to be released or considered uh, to get out on parole. Um, so that that's that's the main uh, sort of proposed reform that I've heard about. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's story about the decline and the number of uh, paroles being granted and all his other work related to criminal justice and democracy. You'll find it all on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, also subscribe to Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.